Uh, and I'm really stoked about this series because I, I love a lot of the Old Testament uh, readings, a lot of the Old Testament books. Uh, but this is one of my favorites. There are so many things, so many life lessons in here, along with learning some of the valuable church history um, and some of the things that really help the New Testament make sense. There's also just a ton of applicable life lessons. So we're starting a new series over the book of First Kings, and we thought we'd be really creative and call this series Kings. So that's the title of the series, Kings. Uh, but before we jump into the main text, um, there's, there's some framework that we need to set up. Okay, because First King begins right at the end of David's life, I mean, in his last moments of his life. And so uh, to kick this series off, I want to take a look at the life of David, just a brief look. It's a very long and complicated life. We can't look at all of it. Uh, But I want to give you just a little background on David because it's going to be hard to understand a lot of the things that 1 Kings talks about and the comparisons it makes if you don't understand uh, King David. So we're going to take a look at his life so that you might understand this a little bit better. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to try. Now, now notice I said try, underscore that, try. Okay, I'm going to try to do it in three messages. Uh, and, and cover three major uh, events in his life. And these, these events will kind of reveal the, the man and, and the king that David had become. Uh, and first we're going to discuss uh, how David uh, was chosen by God to be king. We're going to take a look at that. Uh, and then we're going to take a look at uh, David's first major conquest, which is David and Goliath. And I love preaching on that story because so many people hear that story and they, they're used to, you know, basically the comic book version. And they, they walk away with, look, little people can beat up big people. <laughs> That's really not the message that it's trying to send, so we'll take a look at that in our second message. And then the third message, we're going to take a look at David's sin with Bathsheba and his repentance. So that's kind of what we're going to be looking at. So today we'll start with how God chose David as king uh, over Israel. Now, I want you to realize there are two sides of every human being alive. There's two sides to all of us. All right, there's there's, uh, that, that person that everyone thinks you are, and then there's that person that God knows you are. Does that make sense? There's who everybody thinks you are and who God knows you are. Because, see, man only allows the person you allow them to see or the person that they want to see when they see you. But God sees the very thoughts and intentions of our heart. And when I say heart, uh, that actually means your inner person. When you read that in the Bible, when it talks about someone's heart in the Bible, it's talking about their inner person. God actually sees that in every one of us. So when, when God is pleased with what he sees, you'll find that a lot of people will see God in you. So that's, uh, hopefully we'll take some of that away today. So let's go ahead and jump in. Now some background, Saul was the reigning king of Israel at this time. Okay, he was the reigning king of Israel, and, and it's important you know that God didn't choose him. God didn't, it wasn't God's choice as a king, he didn't want Saul. As a matter of fact, God didn't even want Israel to have a king. He wanted more of a theocracy. He wanted the, the people... Uh, to follow the rules of God and that the men of God would administer it and people would follow it and allow God to be their king. But because all the nations around them had kings, see this even happened back then trying to keep up with the Joneses, right? All the nations around them had these glamorous kings and palaces and had these, you know, this royal attire and they wanted that too. So God says, listen, I don't want you to have one, but if you're going to whine about it, now this is a Chris Mosley version, but if you're going to whine about it, I'll allow you to have one, but, but I'm, I'm warning you, you won't like the consequences. Because basically he said, if you have a king, you're going to suffer. Your families are going to suffer. And as long as you're under a human king, there's going to be suffering because he's human and he's going to make mistakes, right? So, and if you take a look at, even a brief look at Jewish history, you'll see that he was right. I mean, time and time again, there was so much heartache brought on Israel because of their choices of kings. 
So um, it's going to be really cool to see some of this stuff today. So Israel chose their king. Now, it's kind of neat how Israel chose their king because it, you'll see still not much has changed. Because Israel chose their king based on his appearance or his looks and his stature and what people thought of him. That's how they chose him. Look at this, First Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 2. It said, uh, he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was, none, uh, there was not a more handsome person than he among all the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. So basically, they saw this towering, good-looking man, and they go, there's our king. It wasn't based on his character. It wasn't based on his wisdom. It wasn't based on his leadership capabilities, as you will soon see. It was based on the fact that he was good-looking. They just walked around and looked for a good-looking person. Listen, if I'd have been alive back then, it'd have been me. I don't know. (laughs) Just kidding. But anyway, that's exactly what they chose him over, right? Now, when he started off as king, it was okay. But it didn't take long for Saul to start disobeying God and starting to start to get full of himself, okay? And what the final straw for God was, was when Saul disobeyed his orders on how to deal with the Amalekites, Okay, now this is, this is going to be a tough section, so stay with me. But when he disobeyed God about this section I'm about to tell you about, um, God was done with him. Because God wanted Saul to go to war with the Amalekites, and he wanted to utterly destroy them all. Everything. He, didn't want, he wanted all of it gone. And Samuel actually, God said, Samuel, tell Saul how I want this done. And here's what he said, 1 Samuel 15.1. One day Samuel said to Saul, It was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king, of his people, uh, Israel. Now, listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came out of Egypt. Now go and completely, listen, completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. Now I know as soon as you guys hear that, there's questions, right? I'll get to those questions. Right, But this, this was God's orders. All right, So let's take a look at who were the Amalekites. Why were they so detestable? Why did God want them gone? Okay, the Amalekites were descendants uh, and followers of Amalek. Now Amalek was the grandson of Esau, who was Jacob's brother. You guys remember Jacob and Esau? Jacob sought after God. Esau sought after idol gods and became evil, and his people sought after idol gods. So he was the grandson of Esau, right? Now, the Amalekites became some of the wickedest people to ever live. I mean, some of the wickedest people to ever inhabit the world. I mean, and they were committed to wiping Israel and the teachings of their God from this planet. That's what they were committed to. And it wasn't something new. It wasn't a skirmish that just had started. They had been massacring people from Israel for two to four hundred years before Saul's time. Okay, so we're talking, this was a serious hatred that they had for the children of God. And they were merciless. They would just butcher people and butcher everything. When they would go to war with Israel, they, it wasn't enough just to beat them. They would beat them and then kill all their livestock and burn all their land just in case someone survived so they would starve to death. I mean, that's, that's the kind of people they were. And they were notorious for waiting and, and 
in the wings and waiting for Israel to have a weak moment, like a plague that would come through, or, or they would just get back from a battle and were depleted and tired. And they would wait until they were at their weakest and attack them and just decimate them. They were just a wicked, evil people, and they, they worshipped idol gods. They were pagans, I mean, extreme. So this is, and this had been going on for years, years, two to four hundred years. Now, I know what everybody's thinking. Why, why the women? Why the children? Why the infants? Why the babies? How many people thought that when I read that? Be honest. Okay, I get it, right? I, I mean, I get it. And as cruel as heart and heartless as this sounds, stick with me, this was actually God being gracious. Okay, stay with me here. Okay, because God knew that those children would grow up to be just like their parents. It had been going on for centuries. I mean, they just kept continuing and they kept getting worse. The parents were making their children worse than themselves. He knew that as long as he allowed that lineage to keep going, the children would grow up, and worship idol gods and become evil and end up eventually ending up in hell. So by killing everything, women, children, everything, all those children and all those babies were not yet accountable for their sin. They were still innocent in the eyes of God, and he sent generations to heaven by doing that. Now, I know when you hear that, they think, wow, that's pretty harsh, but hey, God doesn't require that we agree with his plans. You just have to understand that his plans are perfect. And that, that was the one way he could assure that not only that wickedness stopped, but the next generation didn't have to suffer the eternity that they would suffer. Now, the reason he killed all the livestock, or he wanted him to kill all the livestock, was because he didn't want the surrounding nations to think that Israel was just doing this so they could have gain, and they could, you know, profit and have their sheep and have their oxen and have all. He didn't want people to know it was about that. He wanted people to know this was God's settling accounts. That's what he wanted them to know. Okay, and so Saul had pretty specific, pretty specific, you know, battle plans here. But he chose to disobey God. And among other things, he spares, of all people, the king of the Amalekites. He spares him. I mean, of all people, if you're going to try to sneak and let somebody live, the king? The one that's responsible? Take a look at this. 1 Samuel 15.10. This is actually kind of funny. It says, Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this, that he cried out to the Lord all night. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him Saul went to the town, listen to this, to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. Anybody starting to see the problem here? To set up a monument to himself because he was so humble, right? It says, then he went on to Gilgal. So when Samuel found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. This just seems so fake to me. Listen to this. I imagine he saw... Samuel's like, oh, no. So listen to how he greets him. He says, may the Lord bless you, he said. He says, I have carried out the Lord's command. So this is how he greets Samuel coming. All right, now listen to this. <laughs> then what is all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle, I hear, Samuel demanded. So remember, he wasn't supposed to take any of the livestock. They were all supposed to be destroyed. And he's sitting here, and there's, you can imagine sheep in the background making their noises and the cattle making their noises. And amongst all that noise, he goes, no, seriously, I did everything God asked me to do. And Saul goes, really? Because it sounds an awful lot like I hear sheep and cattle. What's the deal? Right? So he tries to lie about it. Verse 15, it's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted, but they are going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. Uh, we have destroyed everything else. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. 
What did he tell you, Saul asked. And Samuel told him, Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you as king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, Go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Uh, why did you rush for the plunder and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? Now listen to this. Now you would think if he had any brains at this point, God's prophet called him out. He was busted. He just confessed, right? I mean, he's completely busted right here. Verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Samuel insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back the king of Agog, but I destroyed everyone else. <laughs> I brought back King Agog, but I destroyed everyone else. So he's saying, I did keep the mission, but I didn't, right? I brought back their king, verse 21. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Do you really think that's what they were going to do with it? Yeah, probably not, right? Maybe some of it, but not all of it, right? Verse 22. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than what? Than sacrifice. And submission is better than offering the fat rams. Okay, now that's talking about religion. Give me a second here. Verse 23, it says, rebellion is a, uh, rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. I love this section where he says, what is more pleasing, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to the voice, uh, to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. You know what he was saying? He's saying, listen, you know what God really wants you to do? It's not about all the religious things. It's not about all the things that look good to everybody. Doesn't it sound like religion? You know, keeping all the ordinances. And he said, listen, that's all, you know, one thing. But God would prefer you follow your heart when he commands your heart. When God tells you to do something, do it. That is what's pleasing to God. Not all the ritual, not all the celebrations, not all that stuff. You know, that's, that's pageantry. When God speaks to you and gives you an order, when you keep it, that's what pleases God. Okay, so basically what happened was Saul did everything he was not supposed to do and then tried to justify it and lie about it. So Samuel says, okay, well, I mean, I hear the sheep, I, see, I hear the cattle, I know you brought back the king. I know you violated everything God told you to do. So because of that, God has rejected you as king, right? And, and he leaves. Now imagine for a second that this king probably took that hard for about a minute, you know? And then when he left, he probably thought, what's God going to do to me? And he probably went on about his merry way. Later it would bother him, but not right away, right? So now it's time to find a new king, 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. Okay, so this is really important because Israel chose the first king. They chose Saul, and, and they made a bad choice. Okay, so God said, listen, the next king I'm choosing. I'm picking the next king. All right, I'm going to tell you which one. Okay, look at this, 1 Samuel 16, 4. 
It says, so uh, Samuel did uh, what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? Wouldn't that be a great, a great greeting? Everybody's coming up going, what do you want? You know what I mean? When he comes in. Verse 5, he said, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, I think it's kind of funny how the elders treated him when he arrived. And I kind of get it because back then, when you saw a prophet of God coming, it meant one of two things generally. Either God was going to bring a great blessing or he was going to bring a great judgment. So when they were afraid, they probably were doing some things that they weren't supposed to do and they saw him and they're like, ah. Oh, busted here comes the prophet right here comes the principal we're all going to the office right this is how they looked at it right now that had to be tough for for samuel because i mean have nobody wants to have people fear him nobody wants to have you know people dread their arrival right but it made me think of something i'm going to run this rabbit a little bit because this is what god put on my heart but leadership always seems like the most important and glorious position to people it's just the way it seems. People uh, were probably wanted his position. They thought Samuel had it made. You know, people feared and, 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 and looked at him with great esteem. People always think that, that it's so important and so glorious. And prophets were considered the important spiritual leaders of Israel. But, but what most people never realize is what actually is entailed in leadership. Listen, if you're not called into leadership, don't go into leadership. Okay, now, trust me on this one. Because most can't even begin to imagine the immense pressure that was on uh, Samuel. Can you imagine for a second what the pressure he was under? Every time something went wrong, who'd they go to for answers? I mean, think about this. The pressure on him was immense. Has anybody here been in management? Raise your hand. Do you know what it feels like to have everybody coming to you when something's going wrong and you're just as clueless as them? You just heard about it and they want solutions. I mean, think about this. He was dealing with millions and millions of people. Right now, on a smaller scale, you might, if you're a manager or a leader, might understand this as a pastor on a smaller scale. I get it. I really do. Believe me, as a pastor, people treat you like the principal or the fun sucker. They do. I walk into a room and people will stop saying something because they don't want me to hear it because they were probably saying something they shouldn't be saying. Right? Or they'll say something and say, oh, excuse my language, pastor. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean me? I'm not, I'm not the one to excuse it. Don't say something to me. Right? And it, it feels weird. It makes me feel like the principal. I hate that. You know? And when I come in, they treat me like that. They act like, you know, if, if Pastor Chris doesn't know what we do, God doesn't know what we do. <laughs> right? It's so ridiculous. But that, that's what happens. Right? And, and that's just the beginning. Okay, when you're in leadership, everybody feels they have the right to criticize every decision you make. Good or bad, they criticize every decision you make. There's always somebody that thinks they can do it better. Of course, their butts are too lazy to try. But there's someone that always thinks they can do it better, and there's someone who always thinks they know more. And there are probably many out there who do, right? But this is, imagine, he had millions of people doing this to him, right? Here's what people forget about leadership, and here's what people forget about, about being a pastor. They, uh, they imagine that it's the prominent job with all the glory. I had somebody tell me that one time. He said, you gotta love having that job. You get all the glory. <laughs> you know, I'm a sinner like anyone else because I wanted to slap the taste out of his mouth when he said that. I didn't, so don't judge me, but I wanted to. I'm not going to lie. Oh, because you get all the glory. You know what I mean? And I said, yeah, you know, that's true. Sometimes we do get glory we don't deserve, but you forget that we also get all the blame when something goes wrong. We get all the judgment, and we get what everybody loves, all the complaints. 
right? We get complaints for things we don't even do. Leaders, how many, how many managers in here get complaints for something the company's done and they expect you to be able to say a word and change it, right? That comes with it too, right? The glory also includes sleepless nights, the sorrow of carrying other people's, people's problems, a loss of family time. Those are some of the other glorious things, right? And don't take me wrong. I love being a pastor, and I'm sure Samuel loved being a prophet. But the reason we love it is because God called us to that position, right? Here's the thing. If God isn't calling you into a ministry, don't pursue it. Because when you get there, you'll find out it's not as glorious as you think. Here's the thing. The most valuable ministry to you is the one that God places you in. The one that God puts you in and says, this is the perfect fit, right? And then, then you'll feel blessed. Then you'll, you'll be happy in the things that are, that are tough about your job. You, you'll be able to overlook them because you're right where God wants you. But let me tell you this. There is no ministry, there is no calling that God has for you to criticize other people who are trying to serve God. There's no calling for that. So if you're doing that, you're answering the calling of the other team. Just throwing that out there, won't be on your bill next month, all right? Because here's the thing, ministry isn't about you, it isn't about what you think of others, and it isn't about what others think of you. Ministry is about glorifying God, seeking his wisdom, and seeking his direction. That's what ministry is about. Ministry is about just surrendering your will to the will of God. And Samuel had done that for years. Despite the criticisms, despite the complaints, despite people wanting him dead, Despite all the things that came with it, Samuel had been faithful, and that's why God used him so powerfully. And the next thing he's about to do, choosing this king, really shows how disciplined he was and how faithful he was, because I don't think you understand what he was about to do here. There was a reigning king named Saul, and he was about to go anoint his replacement. Now, as you can imagine, that would go over like a lead balloon with a king, right? What's, what's Samuel the prophet doing? Oh, he's anointing your replacement right now. Can you imagine? If, if, if Saul found out, he most likely would have put him to death. So this showed amazing discipline for him to go out uh, and, and find this king. All right, so let's take a look at this. 1 Samuel 16, 6 and 7. So when they entered, remember they're in Bethlehem now. It says, when they entered, he looked at Eliab, this is one of Jesse's sons, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Now listen to this. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at what? The outward outward appearance, but the Lord looks at The the heart, the inner being of a person. See, Eliab was good looking. He was big in stature. He was the stereotype of what Israel would want as a king. Big good-looking, well-thought-of, and the people would have loved this pick, and they would have been wrong again and would have ended up in a mess again, right? Let's look at that again, because I just love, what, I love what, what God said to Samuel. He said, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at the appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Isn't that true? Isn't that so true? I mean, it still happens today. See, God sees past that masquerade people present on the outside. And you can pretend that you don't do it, but there are times we all do it. Right? There are times we all pretend to be something we're not. There's actually a word for that. Anybody know what that is? 
Hypocrite. There we go. Anyway, that's another sermon. Right? Uh, but, you know, appearance cannot reveal anything about someone. It used to drive me crazy. People would get ran out of church. I was talking to, to Jane about this beginning of service. People would get ran out of church because of their appearance. That's happened many, many. I've, I've been there when that's happened before. I can't even imagine how God feels when Christian people are judging how someone looks and making a determination about how valuable they are to be in the body of Christ. I can't even imagine being that ignorant. I mean, worried about what race, what gender, worried about what ethnicity. I just can't imagine people being that ignorant. And I've seen, I saw a young man one time that I was going to church, uh, that I went to high school with and, and did some other things with, and he was still doing them, right? And he was still, you know, heavily involved in, in drugs and alcohol. And, and he showed up to church one night, and it was on an evening that I was preaching. I was an associate pastor at the time. And he comes in with, you know, with his heavy metal t-shirt on. He's kind of stuck in the 80s, right? And, and, he had a, and he had a baseball hat on, and he sat down. And one of the elders or deacons, I can't remember which one, walked up to him and said, son, take that hat off or leave. We don't wear hats in the house of God. And he felt so big and bold in front of all his elder deacon buddies. You know what I mean? Luckily, he stayed. The young man heard the gospel that night. He trusted Christ for his eternal life. Two weeks later, he was killed in a car accident. Three weeks, something like that. Later, he was killed in a car accident. Can you imagine if he had left, if he would have left because someone judged his appearance and ran him out of church and never heard the gospel? Can you imagine for a second? You are never more like the enemy than when you judge by the outside of a person. Because the outside of a person doesn't say anything about a person. It doesn't say anything about him. Right? The only way to be fully known is how God fully knows you. He sees your heart. He sees the generosity you have, the dedication you have, the love, the compassion you have, or the lack thereof of all those things. And he's the only one that can make a true determination or judgment as to who you are. That is not our job. I've had people tell me before, oh, well, he's not a Christian. I go, how do you know that? They go, look at him. I go, what, what does that mean? I had somebody tell me one time, well, if he was a Christian, he would cut that hair. I said, by God, if I could have his hair, I'd have it. You know, unbelievable. But it was happening back then. It, it's still happening today, right? Now, eventually, Saul meets all of Jesse's sons but one. Look at this, 1 Samuel 16, 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. You think he's getting frustrated? He's seeing all these, he's, he's risking his life being there. I mean, he probably wants to get this done and get the heck out of Dodge, right? Everyone that goes by is not the right one. God's going, nope, not the one. Verse 10, then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Okay, now, Samuel had to be really, really frustrated, but he knew God was always right, and God said that he was going to find the king here. Here's the problem. Here's why he's struggling. You see, Jesse never dreamed that God would choose his youngest son. He never dreamed that because, I mean, he was basically still a boy. He had no real life experience to speak of. He wasn't a soldier. He hadn't been in command. I mean, he was the guy that took care of their animals, for crying out loud. He was a shepherd boy, right? So he made the mistake of trying to believe that God judges people the same way he did by what he saw on the outside and by reputation. He made that mistake. 
So he didn't even ask his youngest son to come out and stand before the prophet. Didn't even ask him, right? Because that didn't make sense. Why would he pick him? You know, here's something we have to remember. Always remember this. God doesn't require that his ways make sense to you. Do you know that? God's truth isn't dependent on you believing it. It's true whether you believe it or not. If you choose to believe it, you'll be blessed by it. If you don't, you'll suffer the consequences. But here's the thing. God doesn't say, oh, you don't like that? I'm sorry. Let me see if I can go back to the drawing board. That's not how God works, right? His ways don't have to make sense to us. Because, see, our ability to understand people is limited. His isn't, right? And people, believers or not, too often reason without any good reason. You know what I mean? We often reason without any good reason. Basically, we believe what we want about people based on our biases and our prejudices. And all of us are guilty of that. That we believe what we want about those people. See, God's decisions are based on his omniscience, meaning he knows everything. And that's why we should only be focused on pleasing God, not worry what, about what man thinks, because, listen, pleasing and trusting God just simplifies everything. He sees what you don't. But see, this is what was plaguing him. David's dad just couldn't see that. Right, now let's look at this, 1 Samuel sixteen eleven. It says, Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit until... He comes here. Now listen to this. Verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. I can't wait to tell you what that means. Okay, now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Uh, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. Now listen to this. From that day forward. That's going to be important later. The Holy Spirit came upon David from that day what? So David is the only Old Testament personality we can prove always had the Holy Spirit with him from this point on. It didn't come and go like it did with a lot of the other ones. It was with him from that point forward. And Samuel rose and went back to Ramah. Okay, so Samuel, who probably was really frustrated, finally all these, you know, all these big hunks go by, you know, his older sons. And then he goes... It's none of these bums. Is this it? Is this your last son? Again, this is my translation. Right? Is this the last one? Is this all your kids? Because none of these are the one. And then his dad, Jesse's like, well, I mean, I mean, yeah, I got one more. But he tends the sheep. I mean, he's a kid. You're not seriously thinking about him. He goes, get him. Get him down here. Right? Bring him right. And so he had to send to the fields to get him. All right, now, David was described as being ruddy and having beautiful eyes and being handsome. Now, the word ruddy in Hebrew means reddish. That's what it means. Just a second. I haven't said anything yet. Okay, it means reddish. Now, a lot of people think this means he had red hair. Now, I understand that because it did describe him as handsome, so I understand why you might think that. Okay, but actually, sadly, ruddy does not mean redheaded. Okay, ruddy refers to a skin tone. Ruddy simply means in the Hebrew, reddish. And it's how they would describe someone who worked outside a lot. Because they would always have that reddish 
you know, appearance because they're always in the sun. So he was describing his skin tone, uh, skin tone, his skin tone, not his hair color, unfortunately, right? He was reddish in skin tone, but he was a looker, right? Now, the fact that David didn't come on his own to see Samuel says something about his character. Because at that time, if a prophet came to town, that was a big deal. How many people have seen Lord of the Rings? God, forgive me, I'm about to say this. How many people have seen that? Okay, I love that movie. I don't care what you all say. All right, I do. Right, now, remember how Gandalf comes to town and everybody's like running to see what he's doing? This, when Samuel came, when a prophet came, people would want to see him. It was rare. You know, they would want to know what was going on. It would be hard to resist coming. And everybody would drop everything they were doing and run to the prophet. David didn't do that. Did he want to? Probably. Why didn't he? Because he was given an assignment. Care for your father's sheep. And he knew if he left them there, they would be vulnerable. Someone could, you know, an animal could attack him. Someone could steal him. And because he was given an assignment by his father, he felt that was his first obligation. And he did the responsible thing and stay with his flock. This was just proving he was the right person. He stayed with his flock, right? He took care of business. And as soon as Samuel sees him, he says, this is it. This is the one. And he anointed him in front of his brothers. Now, notice he didn't do it in front of everybody. Because who would have found out? Saul would have found out, right? And then somebody would have been killed. Think about it. If Saul would have found out they anointed him king, he probably would have killed David and Samuel. He probably would have had both of them killed before that spread. Okay, so it's, it's really important. Now, as we move forward, I think it's pretty cool. You're going to see how, how David handles this. Now, realize he's just been told. This tells you something else about his, something else about his character. David has just been informed that God has chosen you to be his anointed king over Israel. Okay, a young man, an anointing. How many young men wouldn't be able to start walking toward the city going, you better bow, son, God just made me king. How many would be able to stay quiet about their anointing? How many people, when the king gave an order, would say, I'm not listening. Do you know who I am? I'm stinking David, the ruddy hot guy that God just chose to be king. You're sitting in my throne, punk. That's what most people would do, wouldn't they? David didn't do that at all. David masterfully handled, handled being God's king while serving man's king. This shows his humility. This shows that he was waiting on God to direct him. Because David knew there would come a time when God would publicly announce him king. But right now, his job was to be loyal to the king that the people had chosen until God chose to rise him to the throne. That just shows so much about his character. So much about his character. So this is one of the most important events in his life because it's important that you understand that David was selected by God to be king and patiently waited obediently to the king that God didn't want until God put him where he needed him. So this is an amazing start for him. But there's a couple things I want you to take away from this message before I close, and they're important things. See, God sees what we're capable of and calls us to that ministry accordingly. Okay, listen, you need to be looking for that. And here's the important thing. I know when I first entered into ministry, there were so many people telling me God didn't want me there. You wouldn't believe it. People are terrible. I mean, who does that? I had people literally calling me saying, I think you've missed your calling. <laughs> Talk about a confidence booster, right? 
Here's the thing. God sees what you're capable of, and he calls you to ministry accordingly. So don't worry about what man thinks. Don't worry about them thinking you're qualified or not. Don't worry about whether it appears to man that you can be successful at that. Don't worry about it. If God calls you to a ministry, he's going to equip you, and he's going to empower you to be successful at it. I promise you. He always has. He always will. Here's some simple steps. Okay, and people always ask me, well, how do I know God's will? Well, there's not going to be a burning bush in your backyard, and, and if it is, it's probably nobody going to be speaking from it. Okay, that's not how he works anymore. If you want to know God's will, draw closer to him. Seek his wisdom in your life, and he'll show you. Right, I love this. In James 1.5, it says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him what? Let him what? Is it up there? It's not up there. Let him ask of God. Trust me, that's what it says. All right, it says, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If you want understanding, ask for it, and you'll, you'll be given that understanding. If you're not willing to wait or don't ask, don't complain if you don't have it. Okay, he says, if you want to know, ask God, and he'll tell you. Also, remember, if you want to succeed, if you want to have a powerful personal ministry, you got to follow God's path because his path is the only one that leads to success. David was an expert at this in the beginning, right? Psalms 119.105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I love that verse because what it's saying is, God, when I'm following you, you illuminate the right path for me to take. You know when you get in trouble? When you run ahead of the light, right? When you leave the light behind and run around in the darkness and try to find your path on your own, that's when you get in trouble. But as long as you stay in his will, his word is a light his word is a light. You notice any important thing there? His word is a light. So that would mean that his word is a light. Right? So if you want light in your life, you're going to have to want? There we go. I was hoping you guys were taking that bait. I was throwing it out there. Right? People always read this and they go, that's a great bumper sticker. Now listen. It says, your word. That means if you are reading and seeking his wisdom, it will become a light that guides you on the right path. And if you trust him, he'll not only guide you, he'll lead you right on into success. And we're going to see that as we move on studying about David. But I'm going to go ahead and stop there. I'm going to ask you, would to please bow your heads. Now, if this is your first time, we always give an invitation, and it's as simple as this. We don't ask anybody to come forward. We just ask everyone to bow their heads. And there's sometimes you feel like the word of God is speaking directly to you. And I always just want the opportunity to pray for those people. I don't chase you down after church or try to jump mail you or anything like that. I just genuinely want to pray for you. Because I know the difference between a believer and someone who is not a believer is faith. We're not better. So if you'd like me to pray for you, just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. And I'm not going to point you out, but I will pray for those people. Bless those people. If you're listening and watching online, God knows your heart. Listen, as believers, gosh, there's going to be so much for us to learn from not only the life of David, but from 1 Kings. But one thing we're going to see over and over is how important it is just to give God the reins. And that's something I'm, I'm just so excited about us learning in this book, so I'm going to pray for us too. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. We thank you for your love and mercy and kindness. We thank you, Lord, that you love us despite us, not because of us. Lord, you see our hearts, you know our thoughts and intentions, you see the things we hide from everyone else. 
and seeing all that blackness, you still love us because you desire to have a relationship with us and everyone you created, you desire to embrace. And we just thank you for that love. We thank you, Lord, that you made a way for us to have eternal life simply by trusting that what Jesus did was enough. And I pray if there's someone here who doesn't know you, no doubt something's complicated, that simple message. I just pray, God, that whatever's complicated, that you just remove it from their mind and let them see the love that took you to the cross. Let them believe what your son did. And God, we know in the authority of your word that they will be one of yours. I pray if they make that decision, they reach out to someone, us, or or a good Christian friend or organization. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, it's so hard, so hard to just hand the reins over. It's easy to come to church. It's easy to say and do the things you're supposed to do in church. It's just hard sometimes to surrender everything else the other days. Lord, give us the faith to turn the control of our life over to you, to allow your word to dictate our path, and lead us in paths of success that would draw others to you. We just thank you for everything you do for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.